I'm Graham Rose, and this podcast follows my attempts to unravel a family mystery. The mystery of the unsolved 62-year-old murder of my great-uncle, Fred Jeffs. This is a story with all the ingredients of a classic film noir. The discovery of a dead body in a remote lover's lane. An elusive mystery woman and a murder weapon found and then lost. But it's as much about those on the sidelines, bystanders caught up in the dramatic aftermath of a brutal murder. Innocence punctured by an unexplained act of violence. As I scratch at the surface, I keep meeting people who remember the case and who add to a collective narrative beyond the published facts of the police investigation. Surely someone out there knows the truth about what really happened. 62 years after the event, anyone with a living memory of the case will now be in their 70s or 80s or older. Time is running out to find someone who can shed light on the mystery of Fred Jeffs and the Sweet Chop murder. Episode 2. The Short Good Friday. The April of 1957 was the driest it had been for 20 years. The sun came up at just after six on a pleasant Good Friday morning, 19th of April. And by half past six, the police had been alerted to the discovery of an abandoned vehicle driven into a side alley off Brantley Road, Witten, in the shadow of the giant Imperial Metals complex. The vehicle was an Austin van, a grey A30 Countryman with its distinctive registration plate TOM89. It hadn't been there long. Perhaps someone had heard the slamming of a car door. What certainly drew attention was the splattering of blood across the offside wing and across the windscreen and on closer inspection, evidence of a lot more of the red stuff in the back of the van. Not only blood, but vomit, indicating that whoever it was had likely regained consciousness before being finished off. Days later, the police would release images to the press showing items discovered in the van. A wallet, empty. A pair of dark-rimmed spectacles. When I visit that side alley today, between Brantley and Westwood Roads, it remains a dumping ground. But today, the alley is filled with plastic ride-ons, mattresses, rain-scarred furniture and abandoned soft toys. Almost all of the terraced houses here in Brantley Road have been UPVC modernised, with only a couple looking like they've had long-term occupants, with peeling paint ivy growing over the bay window and ancient non-functioning doorbells. Surely the occupants of this one might remember. I knock. But then people don't open their doors to strangers round here. Not anymore. I push a handwritten card through the letterbox, fearing I may have arrived just too late. And then I leave. But a couple of days later, I get a call. Saved message received Wednesday, March 27th at 2.30 p.m. Hello, Craig. This is Mrs. Berry Joyce. 
I do know know anything about that flan because I was be about seven or eight. Might have been younger than that, and um, but I don't know anything about the flan. Okay, and there's nobody in the road that's been here longer than me. I'm the only one. Okay, love. Thanks very much. Bye. It seems the memory of these events is disappearing. Back to Good Friday 1957, and Birmingham CID discover that the owner of the abandoned A30 van, TOM89, is a shopkeeper from Quinton, Frederick Walter Jeffs. Colleagues from Worcestershire Constabulary call in at Jeffs' sweet shop at number 12 Stanley Road. The occupant of the flat upstairs is nowhere to be found, but Fred's parents, Fred Senior and Hannah, my great-grandparents, live opposite at number three Stanley Road. With their help, the police gain entry to the building, only to find that Fred's bed has not been slept in. The police then put out a call across Birmingham, Worley and Smethwick. Where is Fred Jeffs? <laughs> Meanwhile, two miles north of Jeffs' Quinton Sweet Shop, Two young lads leave their homes in Sydenham Road, Smethwick. They'll be out all day, or at least till tea time. Their mums won't know where they'll be heading, and their dads will not much care, because, well, kids, they look after themselves, don't they? Where we lived was obviously in the um, heavily industrialised side of the borough. You've got all the filth and the crashing of the different foundries round by us. It was full of smoke, dust, dirt, noise. The grass used to be grey off the ash from the aluminium castings. And if we wanted to play as kids, we used to have to sort of spread farther afield. So what we used to tend to do when we had a school holiday, which obviously April 57 was, uh, we used to spread further afield, and so we used to wonder from where we lived in Sydenham Road, me and Ray, make our way along Middlemore Road, up to the main Birmingham Wolverhampton Road, cross over the road, and then we was in Wasson. And it was just our little escape, because it was that little bit of country air, if you want to put it that. I suppose it'd be about 10 o'clock in the morning, something like that, when we went down there. The boys head out into the relative wilderness of Sandwell Valley, or as it's locally known, Wasson. Our narrator here, Alan Waugh, is the eldest at nine years old, and his best mate, Ray Jones, is still eight. As they make their way along Park Lane, with the cemetery to their right, and the old sandstone perimeter wall of the long-gone Sandwell Priory to their left, Alan sees something unusual in the grass verge. Literally lying there in the grass, and it was, it, the, the weight of it had actually flattened the grass down. Of course, obviously then, when I picked it up, uh, I noticed then it was covered in, well, didn't know at the time, but it, it looked like it had been used to, I don't know, batter or an animal or something like that, uh, because it was literally gore and brains, whatever you want to call it, it was all over it. Alan has picked up a metal bar, about 18 inches in length. It's a lorry starting handle. The boys know exactly what it is because Ray's dad keeps a yard with wagons. They know what the object is, but they don't know what it's covered with. Didn't know at the time, we just knew it was nasty, sticky, smelly. And I got it all over my hands as I picked it up. As I say, it was a heavy starting handle, so it was literally 
two hands to pick the thing up. And I said to Ray, what the devil is this on here? And he looked at it and he said, oh my goodness. And he said, that's blood. But by this time I was absolutely covered in, Ray was looking at it, he wouldn't touch it. You know, off, off this. And at that, I just literally, oh, threw it over the wall. With his left hand, Alan chucks the starting handle and tries to wipe his hands on the grass. But it's only then that they realise they are not alone. And that is when Ray said, there's a fellow watching us there, and as we were coming back, he was over the road watching us, and he was a chap in like, uh, trilby hat, uh, long mac. Well, can you imagine gangsters at that time, or policemen used to wear them, gabardine, the gabardine max. And he just kept on intently watching us. So we threw this thing over the wall, and I said to Ray, he's still watching us. So we then turned round again, and literally bolted past him. And then he quickened his step, and we just belted hell for leather, back down towards the um, Birmingham Road, Holyhead Road, down Middlemore Road, and back down to home. We know the guy followed us a fair distance back. Is it more or less whether or not he was watching to see whether we was actually going away from the area or what, we don't know. You know, we're dodging the cars as we raced across the road. That's how frightened we were. Chased by the man, the boys head back into Smithwick and the relative safety of their homes. They've shaken him off, for the time being. Though they don't yet know it, they will meet him again. But that part of the story's for later. What time that was, I don't know. I know, I wanted to get in and, and wash my hands. And, and Mum says, what? You know, Mum said to me at the time, what, what's all that? I said, I don't know, I'm covered in it, Mum. As Alan and Ray are leaving Wasson, a group of older teenage boys are heading the other way. They include 15-year-old Cyril Blakemore. On that sunny spring day, Cyril and his mates are out birds nesting. At about 4.30pm, they pass through a spinney north of Hansworth Cemetery on the edge of Wasson, and about 50 yards from the lane, Cyril spots a pair of upturned shoes in the undergrowth. It's the body of a man lying half-buried in a shallow, makeshift grave underneath an elder tree. Where are the bluebirds that I once knew? They sang for me as they sang for you. Lush was the garden where our love was true But a cold April wind Brought a chill That said we were through run and they fetch help from a man working in a nearby allotment. That man stops a passing car and they all make their way to the nearest police station. Local newspaper, the Smithwick Telephone, will later interview Cyril about the experience and get him to reconstruct the moment of discovery for a photo in the following Friday's edition. I thought he was a tramp at first, Cyril tells the reporter. 
but there was no movement. There was a big oily mat over him and a big stone on his head. The reporter asks him how he felt. I was not in the least upset, he says. Unperturbed, Cyril spent the rest of the evening in a local picture house. Unlike Alan and Ray, the younger boys, back home in Sydenham Road. Word of them finding the lorry starting handle, covered in blood and gore, has quickly spread throughout the neighbourhood. Around tea time, there's a knock on Alan's door. Alan's kid brother Len, aged five at the time, remembers seeing the black Wolsey police car from the bay window. One of them with the bells on the front, he recalls. CID men put a frightened Alan into the back of the Wolsey and drive him back to Wasson. At the time, though, he has no idea of the bigger story unfolding. I always remember I was just literally rammed in the middle of these burly detectives and then driven, obviously, uh, to the area where the, you know, the body was found. And when we got down there, were literally police all over the place, uh, searching in Bracken, goodness knows where else. I parked up approximately where, just before where I thought I found it. I got out and I said, but it ain't there now. I said, because I threw it over the wall. And on the other side of the wall, which we didn't know, I didn't know at the time, there were other policemen wandering around. So they, they took me around and they said, would it be around about this area? I said, well, yeah, as far as I can remember, I was just frightened. So they said, fine. And they went then and sat me back in the car. It started to get dark. And I went on my own sitting in the car. So then a detective, one of the detectives came back. The others were still down there. And I said, did you find what I threw away? And they said, well, we're still searching, but we must get you back to your family because they'll be worried. And they took me back. And that was the last I ever heard anything from me. The 40 or so detectives continued to scour the area in search of the missing lorry starting handle, but to no avail. It has mysteriously disappeared. Today we'd come to expect a little counselling or aftercare following such a traumatic encounter for a young person. For Alan, though, back in 1957, the police decide he's been through enough, and that's the end of it. For Alan, it remains something he can't ever forget. He has nightmares about it, especially after discovering that the body of Fred Jeffs was lying so close to where they wandered that day. Young Alan is terrified that the murderer will return to murder him. After all, he's followed them part of the way home and potentially knows where they live. The boy's ordeal continues. A couple of weeks later, we decided to go up to the pit mounds, as we called it, which was the, um, the leftover slag tip from the old Samuel Colliery. We were playing in the old disused Weybridge um, by the side, but used to be where the, you know, the colliery trucks used to come through, be weighed. Uh, but it was completely wrecked, and you know, uh, roof was off, walls were down, no floorboards. And we were playing in there, and this guy came in, literally grabbed hold of Ray, no, not a word, and literally tried to push him out through an open window with his hands round his neck. And I fetched a chunk of wood off the floor. Clegged this bloke over the back. He let go of Ray and he went out through the wall. I skipped out through the, the door and then we ran up to the top of the 
the coal slack. And this guy was trying to chase us, but he couldn't keep up with us. And we sat on the top and we were literally throwing stuff at him just to keep him away. We actually thought, was that the same guy? You know, I mean, he just literally turned up, looked at us, and then made a, a jump for Ray and Ray backed off. And the guy literally, as I say, pushed him over the, the windowsill of this little bungalow thing with his hands around his neck. It was one of the reasons, and especially with me and Ray, we literally were grounded for the most of the holiday afterwards. Um, we literally had to stay in our backyards playing, and I mean, which is unusual because we, we used to being out and about and sitting down the side of the canal and whatever we wanted to do, and it was stopped. It was a, it was a strange year. Has the murderer followed them? Are Alan and Ray the only ones who can identify him? And is this why he is determined to finish them off? The eight- and nine-year-old boys are more convinced of this, perhaps, than their 70-year-old selves. But how strange that a man should attack them like that with no words, barely ten days after the encounter on Wasson. And how could that bloodied starting handle just disappear if it wasn't the man watching them, pursuing them? The boys are credible witnesses. But why were they never contacted again by the police? I didn't find out until 1972. Wandered over the road to the police station and walked in and I say to the desk sergeant, I said, did you ever find the person involved in the, um, the Jeff's murder? I thought, or me and my friend thought, we found the murder weapon. And he said, hang on a minute. He says, I'll, uh, I'll fetch somebody out the back who was a young... Bobby, who was then either the, I presume, an inspector, he came out with the file. He said, what's your name first? Told him my name. You had a friend with you? And I said, yeah, Ray Jones. And he says, yeah. And I said, uh, and he, we think we found the murder weapon. And he says, what was it? I said, well, a lorry starting handle with the, you know, the heavy, knurled, and, you know, he starts under the crank. And I says, covered in blood, gore, goodness knows what else. And he just nodded and he said, yeah, that was a murder weapon. And I said, well, why, why was nothing ever said or nobody ever came back to see me again? He says, I said, and there was no announcement. He says, you were, two, you were an eight and nine-year-old children. He said, we couldn't put that in the papers. And I said, but you did believe me. He said, we believed you from the day we turned up. Do you don't think we'd send four or five burly detectives down to take you down there on your own? We knew you'd be frightened. And, and then I said, did you actually find it? And he says, can't discuss that at the moment. And that was it. Never showed me the notes, but they knew exactly what I was talking about. And months later, the inquest report describes the murder weapon as an irregular-shaped object, like a carjack. The press reported as a piece of stone or concrete. But Alan knows better. He knows it was a lorry starting handle. And this detail in itself is significant because it confirms that the murder was premeditated. A piece of concrete could have been picked up on site at Wasson. A carjack could have been found in Fred's own A30 van, as could the Austin starting handle. But the object that Alan found was much heavier. It didn't belong in Fred's van. It must have been brought by the killer. And that killer, as witnessed by Alan and Ray, managed to recover it, thereby ensuring it could never be traced. The story has impressed itself deeply into Alan's consciousness and even today, 62 years later, he thinks of it on a daily basis. 
It was an experience that frightened a lot of the local kids. And as a result, parents kept their kids in because it was so close to home. Things like that didn't happen. Innocence punctured by an unexplained act of violence. In the next episode, how does the community react to the news of a murder in their midst? Listen to episode three, entitled, A Robbery Gone Wrong. Fred Jeff's The Sweet Shop Murder is created by me, Graham Rose, with original music and sound design by Fox and Russia, and direction from Steve Johnston. This podcast series is made possible with the support of Black Country Touring, and the original theatre production was supported by the Birmingham Rep and the Arts Council of England. If you'd like to rate, review, or tell us who done it, please get in touch. Hashtag Fred Jeffs.